Well, if you would, please stand, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and then if you stand, I'll be reading verses 15 through 23, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 15 through 23, as we really follow the, the culmination of Paul's argument, his example that he provides as one who lays down his own freedom so that others will be freed from idolatry, both those in his congregation, those in the congregation in Corinth as well as unbelievers. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 15. But I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me, what then is my reward? that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not, my, not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do not, or I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Please be seated. It was Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary to the Aka Indians, who famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And Jim put his money where his mouth was. He gave up what he could not keep, his physical life, to gain what he could not lose, his eternal life and the eternal lives of others. Now, we always tend to think of our lives as it would just be better if we could get what we want. Now, instead, we need to realize that as believers, our lives get better when we give up what we want to be a blessing and benefit to others for the sake of the gospel. In fact, giving up what we want becomes what we want. So it becomes our greatest delight to give up those things we could have or might have had so that Christ would be honored. You see, although Christ gave up the glories of heaven to step down to earth, take on the form of sinful flesh and be crucified on a Roman cross, he did not do this unwillingly or grudgingly. He delighted to do the will of his Father and to provide the way of salvation for his people. This does not mean that there were not difficulties and trials to overcome or even that he did not recoil at the thought of taking the wrath of his own Father. And he never lost the joy of suffering for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Would that we would have the same attitude as our Savior, delighting to become the slaves of all men so that we might by all means win some. Now, what we'll see this morning then is that the true believer builds his entire life around the good news concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, always being ready to give up his personal desires and rights and privileges to fulfill the stewardship of the gospel entrusted to him by Christ. The true believer builds his entire life around the good news concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, always being ready to give up his personal desires and rights and privileges to fulfill the stewardship of the gospel message entrusted to him by Christ. We make ourselves slaves of all so that we might know, they might know Christ and him crucified. 
Now remember, in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 and 10, Paul is making an extended argument against idolatry. He's come after the Corinthians for immorality. And remember, these two are always paired together. Immorality is really stems from and feeds upon idolatry. So Paul now begins to address within the very Corinthian congregation the wrestles of going back to idolatrous practices that they were called out of. And he does this in light of dealing with a particularly difficult issue, that of meat sacrificed to idols. And the, the difficulty is that the meat sacrificed to the idols is not in and of itself inappropriate to eat. They're allowed to eat it. Why? Because there are no other real gods. So if you sacrifice meat to other gods, you're not actually sacrificing it to anyone. Yet, the wrestle was that they, they were beginning to walk back into the sacrificial services, going back to the temple meals and eating the meat there, declaring their freedom, we have the right to eat the meat, which they did. But then also declaring their freedom, we can eat the meat in this circumstance because there are no gods. There aren't any other true gods, so there's no gods being worshipped here. And we, we saw, if, we, if you walk through this progression, you get to chapter 10, Paul says, no, no. There are no other gods, but there are demons. And when you are involved in those kinds of sacrificial services, although the meat is fine to eat, you may not partake of the meat in that circumstance because that's demonic worship. Demons are running that, and you're enslaved to that. So remember, the, the entire theme of these three chapters is not so much Christian freedom as flee from idolatry. Do not exercise your Christian freedom in a way that would ever exacerbate idolatry, either with believers or with unbelievers. Why would we use our freedom in such a way that it might stumble them or might cause unbelievers to not even recognize the goodness and greatness of Christ? So he's making that extended argument. We saw him confront idolatry. I'd say, he said, fleeing idolatry requires the proper use of knowledge about God. Yes, we all have knowledge, but we have to use it properly. And then he's begun to walk through the ways that idolatry can be defeated. And he began by saying, a careful use of our Christian liberty will help us defeat idolatry. To not eat in places where we shouldn't and to not then eat even if it might, or even if though we have the right to do so, we wouldn't eat meat, he says at the end of chapter 8, if it would stumble a brother. So anything that might cause a brother to be drawn back towards idolatrous practices, to have their conscience harmed, Paul says, I will stay as far away from that as possible. And then in chapter 9, he, he tells them or he shows them how to flee from idolatry and exercise Christian freedom through his own teaching and through his example. So he defends his apostleship. You need to listen to my teaching, he says. You are not the authorities, right? The, the Lord Jesus Christ has given me this message. You can't eat in these places and you must flee idolatry. You have to carefully use your freedom. And, and then he says, I'm setting you an example. He, he gave the major example that we've been discussing of giving up his right to be paid. He says, I am an apostle. You're, you're, my, you're my seal of apostleship. If I'm not an apostle, you're not Christians. But I am giving up my right to be paid, even though that makes it look as though I don't have the proper apostolic skills but I'm actually not taking money from you so that you will not manipulate. You cannot manipulate me. And there can be no accusation made that my primary goal is not Christ and Him alone. I'm not interested in money. I'm not worshiping greed. I'm not worshiping the things of the world. So Paul is using his own example as a means by which they can see what it looks like to flee idolatry. Even as he's taught them this, he also lives it. And really, the argument comes to full culmination in 19 through 23. Because look, this is what my life is like. I've given up the, the finances, but here now is, what, is the way I live my life positively. Negatively, no money from you, no tainted motives. Positively, I'm your slave. And not only your slave, but everyone's. And we began looking at that last week with Paul's explanation of his 
voluntary slavery. Verse 19 says, for though I am free from all men, I make myself a slave to all so that I might win more. He says, I'm free to pursue the work of Christ in all the ways that the word of God commands, that my commission as apostle requires, and that my conscience allows. He says, I'm not required to perform certain actions because others think that I should. His conscience, informed by the word of God, illumined and empowered by the spirit of God, was sufficient to properly direct his thoughts and actions. He says, I'm free. I'm totally free. In fact, I'm really in one sense the most free. I'm an apostle. I received my gospel directly from Jesus. You didn't. You got it from me. He says, I'm free. But... And really, in light of that total freedom, Paul says, I willingly make myself a slave. I'm not constrained to do this. In that sense, I don't have to come underneath others and their religious compunctions or compulsions, as it were. His slavery isn't so much that he would do anything any person wanted, right? Whatever their whim was, Paul would do it. No, his slavery was that he would put himself under their constraints, their cultural traditions or religious practices as far as was biblically allowable so that he could have, a, have an open avenue for the gospel. He would allow the things that ruled them to temporarily rule him that he could share with them the gospel and set them free, that they would no longer be ruled. And so this willing slavery is actually required if we are to win more. Again, back in your text, verse 19, Paul says that I may win more. What's the implication? Some will be won just simply by a Christian life that has the Spirit of God living inside. There will be some proclamation, there will be some living, and some will be saved. Paul says, I am not happy with some, and my call is not some. The goal is to win more. See, we must never get bound up in a kind of a, a reformed apathy. God is sovereign in salvation, and therefore, he's going to win some. Now, our goal is that he would win more. In fact, as we will see, all whom he has called. It is our desire. Is that your passion? That would be the question. See, some of us are just happy. Well, the Lord will save some. We got a church. We're going to church. I'm doing my thing through the church, and the Lord will save some. But the goal is to save all, to save more. Again, not all as in every person in the world, but all as in all whom God has called, all who are his. How can we do less? Paul says, I become a slave to everyone, so that all, as many as possible, might be one, so that more might be one. And that, that governs this whole discussion, and that has to be a, a reality check for us. Is that our passion? Now, understand that it's not an optional passion. It was the passion of our Savior. It was the passion of the Apostle Paul. It's the passion of all true believers fleshed out in different ways. He was an apostle, so he had one way that that looked. We are not apostles, and yet we also are slaves, and we also should have it as our goal, must have it as our goal, that more would be one, literally all that God has for us, everyone in our sphere of influence. So we looked at his explanation of his slavery. Now we're going to look at his pursuit of slavery and his dedication to that very slavery. So first, the pursuit for, for this morning, Paul's pursuit of slavery. Number one, Paul became a Jew as a Jew to Jews. Here he's just fleshing out what does this look like. Paul is a consummate Bible teacher. So he doesn't say, look, I'm going to be a slave and figure that out. No, here's how I make myself a slave. And this is really important because if you just took it as in, well, I'll just figure that out. People have made all kinds of mistakes when it comes to what it means to be a slave to men and what it means to be all things to all men. Amazing, ungodly, foolish things happening in the name of, we're going to be all things to all men. That's what Paul said. Well, did you read his examples? That's what we're going to do this morning. He gave you an example of what that looks like so you can't just take it and do whatever you want. So, let's work our way through them. First, becoming as a Jew to the Jews. This is really a stunning statement. Why? Because Paul is a Jew. 
He's an ethnic Jew. So how can he say, well, I became as a Jew to the Jews? Paul, reality check, you are a Jew. So what, what are you saying? Well, what we need to understand is that Paul wasn't denying his ethnic heritage. Clearly, he alludes to it in multiple places in Scripture. I'm still a Jew, and I have a heart. Romans 9, Romans 10, I have a heart for my ethnic people. And by the way, God has a plan for his ethnic people. In fact, we even see the distinction here. Jews didn't disappear. As an ethnic group, when Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, the Jewish people did not disappear. They're still very clearly an ethnic group. And yet how Paul is referring to them is as their religious and cultural group, not their ethnicity. But you need to understand that for the vast majority of Jews, and certainly the Jews of Paul's time, their religious and cultural affiliations were directly tied to their ethnicity. You couldn't break them apart. See, we're Christians today, but then everything in our culture and everything in all the other religious systems around us don't reflect Christianity, right? It's not a church and a state that are one. Well, in Judaism, church and state are one, very similar to Islam, right? I mean, you talk to some of your Muslim friends and you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian and I believe in these things. And yet the country, the government of the country doesn't do the things that the Bible says. And they're like, what's that? Right? If, if that's your law, if those are your rules, then why doesn't your country do those things? We have separation of church and state. They're like, what is that? Right? This is one whole thing. I'm, I'm a Muslim. That means that my culture reflects the Quran, that my religion reflects the Quran, that my life reflects the Quran, everything. And when they establish an, Islam, an Islamic state, that's how it works. You just need to understand that. That's endemic to who they are. You don't become a Muslim and then have a separate country. You're always working to do what? Put all those things together, as the Jews were. They did not receive their being occupied by the Romans as, oh, that's okay. We'll do Roman stuff and we'll do Jewish stuff. They were constantly working to expel anyone from their country because it was all one, church, state, everything. Paul says, look, I'm a Christian, so I'm no longer under the religious and cultural expectations of Judaism, which is Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. That is the religious and cultural expectation of Jews, right? Is everything written in the Mosaic law, right, from Deuteronomy to Malachi, right? That's the old covenant, and that's how they were to live, and there was no getting out from underneath that. You didn't decide if you were going to do that. If you were a Jew, that's what you did. Paul says, I became a Christian. I'm no longer under the religious cultural aspects, even though I remain an ethnic Jew. But Paul says, I'll put myself back underneath that. Again, it's the same as when he says, under the law, he's going to extend this out to people who are not Jews, God-fearing Gentiles who tried to live under the Jewish law. So the second portion, so he says, I become as a Jew to Jews. I become as under the law to those under the law. That's really the same category that is what they're doing is the same. Law there is used as the specific religious and cultural rules necessary under the old covenant. Right? That's, that's what law means in this first use of it here. Right? To Jews and then to those under the law. Again, just to, he's, he's explaining what it means to be a Jew to Jews. That he's underneath Jewish law. Now, remember when Paul came to Christ, he gave up those religious practices. 1 Corinthians 7, 19, circumcision is nothing. 1 Corinthians 8, 8, food will not commend us to God. Food laws, all the things the Jews had. You could eat this, you could not eat this. Colossians 2, 16, he writes, no one should act as your judge in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. All the religious and cultural trappings of Judaism were gone. And Paul says, you know what? I'll willingly come back underneath them. I'll willingly become as a Jew. But the word as is really important because he wasn't saying, no, that's necessary. 
for me to now take vows or be circumcised. He goes, but I can act. I can do those things with a clear conscience because I know they're not necessary for salvation. And if I don't do them, it will make it very difficult for me to minister to my fellow Jews. You might say, well, what do you mean, Paul? How would it be helpful? Well, Acts 16.3. So Paul wanted this man, it's Timothy, right, a convert. And Timothy's mom, what most likely was Timothy's mom, was a Jew, Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. I mean, that's an amazing statement. Paul says in Galatians, look, if you come back underneath circumcision, you've fallen from grace. So how could Paul possibly take Timothy? He's not going to circumcise you. Like, almost like it's no big deal. And he says, the very gift, Luke gives the reason, because of the Jews. You're like, Paul, what's that? being constrained by the Jews to go back to something wrong. Paul says, he's explaining himself here in, in 1 Corinthians. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that I have to have Timothy circumcised. I'm saying that I'm willing to do that if that will enable myself and Timothy to have a proper witness. Because understand, Timothy would not have been allowed anywhere where Paul was. No synagogues, nothing. So Paul says, look, I would like to have the freedom to have Timothy with me as it expands the, the, the power of our missionary team. So I'll have him circumcised. See, Paul was circumcised. You didn't have to worry about that. He could go anywhere that you could go. Timothy couldn't. So he says, look, I'll circumcise him. I mean, that is amazing flexibility coming back underneath Jewish law that he said, look, if you obey that for salvation, you're done. I mean, you can't do that. But if you obey it for accommodation in this sense, the good kind of accommodation, he, he did it almost as though it was, it was, he didn't have a second thought. He took Timothy, Timothy and actually says he circumcised him. Personally, took care of that. I think, well, maybe that's the only thing. no and you might not have thought about this, Paul preached in synagogues. He didn't stand outside the synagogue or go somewhere else and say, I'm not going back underneath that Jewish system. You come out to me, right? Because if you had synagogue worship, right, if you couldn't go to the temple, you believed that was the only way to worship. You couldn't worship anywhere else, right? You weren't allowed to go somewhere else and worship in your home, right? You had to go to the synagogue, the reading of the Torah, and, and the, the leaders the, who were there, you had to come underneath them. So Paul accommodates that. He goes, okay, I'll go to the synagogue and I'll preach, Right? I'm going to preach Christ in the synagogue without compromising himself at all. He's coming back underneath their law. This is what they said to do. Also fascinating, Paul took vows. He, he would come back underneath Jewish regulations, the kinds of vows, perhaps a Nazarite vow, other things they would take. He would do so in order to demonstrate the fact that he wasn't denigrating the Old Testament. He wasn't saying that's evil. He's simply saying that's not necessary for salvation and I don't have to live that out in order to please God. That's very important. Right? In the Old Testament, you had to live according to Old Testament regulations in order to be pleasing to God. You didn't get saved by living according to Old Testament regulations. Right? How did you get saved? By faith in God. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But you couldn't say, God, I believe in you in the Old Testament, but I'm not going to do the sacrificial system. Nope, that would be evidence you didn't believe. I'm going I'm to believe in you, but I'm not going to do the Sabbath. Well, he would kill you. Right? Right, that's what happened. I'm going to go pick up sticks on the, stab, on the Sabbath. I believe in you. If someone were to have said something, I don't think any reasonable Jew would have ever said that. I believe in Jesus, so I don't have to do this. So that's, that's how, that, you had to do that in the Old Testament. Paul's saying, look, that's done. Old covenant, four believers, finished. But I'll put myself back under. Acts 21, fascinating. He's going back to Jerusalem. The, that was, it was an almost exclusively Jewish church. A lot of believers there, but also lots of opportunity to continue to witness to the unbelieving Jews who were there. So as he comes back, James, one of the leaders, the, the, really the elders of that church, say, look, 
People everywhere say you're preaching against the law, that you think the law is bad or wrong, and that you're lawless. Right? You're not pleasing and honoring God. So we have four people under a vow. This is in Acts 21, 20. It says, do what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them. Purify yourself along with them. You take the vow with them. And then pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. Right? Possibly a Nazarite vow here. Excuse me, the opposite of that. Maybe finishing that up. All will know that there is nothing to the things that they have been said about you, but that you yourselves walk orderly keeping the law. Now, did Paul keep the law? That is, that he thought it was necessary for him to be orderly before God? No. And yet he is doing it, and they'll think, oh, he's orderly. He's doing it for a very different reason. Yet he is making that accommodation. So, Paul took the man the next day, purifying himself, and went to the temple. By the way, it didn't solve the problem. The unbelieving Jews still came for him, all right? So he ended up getting thrown, you know, they rob my, you know, there's a mob that riots, and the Romans have to save him. But nonetheless, he was willing to accommodate in these ways. Now, how would this apply to us? I mean, there's a direct application here. Absolutely, you don't have to invent things like, well, how would this, if you have a Jewish friend, there might be times when you would accommodate his beliefs in order to be able to share the gospel with him. You're over at his house, he's practicing the Sabbath. You don't want to say, I'm going to go mow the lawn. He said, well, you just wouldn't do that. Well, I'm free. And if I, if I obey, observe the Sabbath with you, you're going to think that the Sabbath is necessary for salvation. No, they're not. If, if you don't believe that, you've got a clear conscience. Say, I'm going to sit with you, and I'm going to observe that with you, and I'm going to share the gospel with you. Right, so I think this is a direct one-to-one correspondence to Jews in your life. Now, it's just that we don't live in a situation where there are a lot of Jewish people who practice Jewish customs. But if you were in Israel, this would be pretty different. To be a lot more applicable, this part of it to you. So I don't think we have to invent applications here. How does this apply in our culture? Exactly the same, right? That we would be willing to take on Jewish rules and regulations if it was necessary. But the question is, you know, think, oh yeah, would you? Or would you be the one who throws down? Paul said we don't get circumcised. We don't do stuff. So I'm not doing, read the whole Bible. Make sure you read everything about it. There might be circumstances in which if you did that, it would be viewed differently, as we'll see in just a minute. But if you, if you understand the circumstance to be, you can do that as a means by which it would be a blessing to your friend to share the gospel, then do so because you are able to, you have that freedom. And of course, the whole issue is that I might win Jews. Not that I might pra- get, I'll get to go back to some of my Old Testament practices or look, I can show how great I am by doing this, how magnanimous I am. Look, I just want to win Jews. I want to see them removed really from the slavery of now that old covenant system that they're no longer under. I'm going to come under it and draw them out to freedom. It's a sweet thought. I become a slave to them, so they're no longer a slave to that system which ultimately is keeping them in unbelief. Because it's worth it to make yourself a slave if it will lead other people to freedom, and that's why he did it. Paul was driven by a deep heart of love and compassion for his fellow Jews. He wasn't showing off. We know this from Romans 9. I am telling the truth in Christ, verse 1. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, my fellow ethnic Jews. Because it's that what drives you. See, if you have a heart that, that grieves over those who don't know Christ, then you're more willing to make yourself a slave. If not, you're just going to say, well, i got my freedom. I, I, I don't need to do that. I'm not required to sacrifice in those ways, to lay aside my, you know, kind of my cultural norms. But if you've got a heart that desperately longs to see others, it grieves over the fact that they're on their way to eternal hell, guys, that changes us. And we will lower, so we will, we will, become, we will come underneath them as slaves if necessary. 
Second, and really, again, as I've said, largely the same, just probably extending this out to, to Gentiles who were living according to the Mosaic law, is number two, Paul became as under the law to those under the law. That is, he adopted behavior that made it appear to others that he was submitting to the Mosaic law as under law, even though he was not submitting to it for salvation or even for sanctification. And yet it, it looked that way to others. But for Paul, I've become as under the law, though I love this, not being myself under the law. He keeps making these kind of side comments. Like, it looks like I'm under the law, but I'm not actually. I haven't somehow come back underneath the Mosaic law. And again, law here used as old covenant, just the, the law of Moses, if you want to use it that way. All the commands, rules. And by the way, that's both, as it were, moral, religious, cultural. I mean, think about it. They, do the cultural rules of the Jews, were they not moral? Like, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain? What's the whole, Paul says the whole idea there is that you give someone they're worthy of their wages. There's a moral principle, right? The, the cultural religion, I mean, the sacrificial system, that's moral. Right? Underneath that was you need to be cleansed from sin. And then there were what we might call the directly moral commandments, like don't lie, don't disobey your parents. Because the whole law, that whole part came together. And as we will see, underlying all of the aspects of the old covenant are God's eternal, timeless law. His principles that reflect His character and nature that flow through the fulfillment of Christ and into the New Testament that we fully obey, as we'll see. But Paul says, look, as a system, I am not under the old covenant. I don't have to relate to God according to any Old Testament rule, as it were, as it's viewed as the old covenant. Because look, he says, I'm not under the law. Romans 6.14, sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law. Law used in the same way, in the same way there. Galatians 5.18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That is, the law is not your master. The old covenant, as it's written down by Moses and the prophets. Galatians 4.21, to tell me you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So Paul is saying, I'm not under the law, but I will, I'm willing to live as, as though it would look like that if I might win those who are still fully under it. Colossians 1, Paul says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and in, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things created by him. Christ has, is, is the ruler and owner of everything. And in Christ, then, all of this comes to a fruition that removes the, the Old Testament law as the means by which God is pleased. Paul desired to see those who viewed the Mosaic law right, as coming as, as needing to come to Christ for saving faith. He says, again, so that, why does he do this? I might win. Remember that term five times used? I might provide the advantage of, I might see them move from darkness into light, the advantage of truly believing in Jesus and not thinking they're under that Old, Test, old Covenant, as it were. And again, this is where the Jews remain to this day. Right? Any, any Jew who believes that in, in, in who holds to their culture, cultural and religious significance as a Jew Please, they're under the old covenant. The Messiah has not yet come. Paul says, look, I'm not under the law, but I'm willing to live that way. Why? Because I want them to come out from under the law. Now, what's the application here? That is, not Jews, but Gentiles or non-Jews who would hold to Old Testament law. Well, I think we have a perfect example in the Seventh-day Adventists. They're not Jews, and yet many of them would hold to an Old Testament form of food laws and other things, and they would say, you have to do... Now, their, their, their doctrinal statement says you have to do that. Sometimes they would say, well, you don't really have to do that. But the doctrinal statement says, if you don't obey those regulations, you certainly aren't pleasing God. You must remain under Old Testament regulations in order to please God. And what would we say to that? No, you don't. 
You are not underneath those regulations. But yet, if you were going to have someone who is a Seventh-day Adventist come to your home, would you say, hey, you just come eat what we eat? Now, we're not going to kowtow to you those Old Testament regulations. You just come eat what we have. We're Christians. I don't think you would do that. I think you would say, you know what? Well, what can you eat? What can you not eat? You know why they can and cannot eat what they eat, right? You know what they believe. And you're like, well, we'll accommodate that. Come to our home as we share graciously the gospel with you and eat what you can eat. Knowing that you are not accommodating that because it is somehow, you're saying, no, this is necessary for salvation or sanctification. It's necessary to be kind and gracious. And you're going to draw them over in order to do that. So again, almost a direct application there. Gentiles or non-Jews who are trying to live according to the Mosaic law. Now again, we don't run into a lot necessarily, but if that's your family background perhaps, and there's plenty of Seventh-day Adventism here in East Tennessee, it might be a means by which you would win a Seventh-day Adventist, someone who's under the law, even though you're not. But again, the bigger picture is the heart, the desire behind that to do whatever is necessary to put yourself back under regulations that you would never do and that you know are not necessary to please God because your heart is humble and gracious and gentle. That was Paul's and grieving for them. Then here's the harder one probably. The first one, we're like, okay, I mean, we get that. Seems pretty obvious, the application. This next one is a little harder for us because in the name of this one, people have done all kinds of crazy things, ungodly things. And we're just doing what Paul said, right? Where he says, number three, Paul became as without law to those who are without law. Like, oh, that's the one I've been looking for. We're not under law. So now we can, we can do whatever. I mean, we, we have, we've got no law. So whatever it takes to win the person who is not under the law. And this just means a non-Jew or a Gentile who is not trying to live according to the Mosaic law. Essentially, he's saying everybody else. Not some, it's not lawless people. He's not saying, uh, I become, as without law, someone's wildly running around in debauchery. He's saying those who don't believe they have to obey the Mosaic law, they have some other regulation, right? Their temples, their things, whatever, their f- philosophical system. I was like, uh, whatever, whatever it takes, as we'll see, within the righteousness of Christ to do that, I'll do it. But not, let's go find debauched people. Without law here means not living under the law of Moses. Right? So the law has meant the same thing all the way through. Right? And so he says here, Paul lived as though it were not necessary to adhere to the Mosaic law to be rightly related to God. Of course he did. He already said that as a Jewish Christian now, I actually have to work hard to go back underneath the Old Testament regulations. I, I wouldn't do that. So what did he do? He ate in Jewish homes. The Old Testament regulations say you can't do that. It's all unclean. Right? He, he, he walked with, talked with, had, was, had friendships with those who were Gentiles. You couldn't do that as a Jew. You couldn't associate like that. There's lots of things Paul did as a Christian, even though he was ethnically Jewish, that weren't Jewish. He's saying, look, I can do all of that. I purposely do that because I don't have to obey the Old Testament laws in that sense. So I'm, he says, I'm willing to those who are without law as without law. And we know this is talking about Gentiles because this very same phrase is used, Romans 2, where Paul begins to talk about, he talked about Jews, those under the law, and then Gentiles who weren't. He says, for all who have sinned, Romans 2, 12, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And I think ESV says outside the law for these phrases, right? It's, it's taking this from Romans. All have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That's Jews. Sinned under the law, you knew the law, you sinned. If you're without the law, you're still going to get judged because God's moral standards, his perfection didn't go anywhere, even if you didn't know the Old Testament laws. Romans 2.12, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, again, 
the Old Covenant as codified in the Old Testament. They do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. That is, they do things which reflect God's moral character, and so they're judged. Paul says, look, I'll become like that. I'll become as one who's not underneath Jewish law, and I'll eat and talk and walk and work with Gentiles so that they might be one. I'm not going to require them, again, to look like Jews. So, fascinatingly then, he compelled Timothy to be circumcised so he could be as a Jew to Jews. But Titus, when he was in a different situation where the Jewish leaders are demanding, here's, these are the Judaizers, they're demanding that people be circumcised to be saved, Paul says, but even Titus in Galatians 2, 3, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was not compelled to be circumcised. Wait a minute, Paul. I mean, just a, just a couple months ago, you took Timothy and circumcised him yourself. Now they're demanding Titus's circumcision. You say, forget it. I'm not doing it. Well, there he's being as without law to those without law. Titus doesn't have to be circumcised. I'm not going to circumcise him. Because if I do, that will send the wrong message to you and will actually hinder your ability to come to Christ. Everything done for the gospel. Paul uniquely and by the Spirit of God, through wisdom and the Word, able to understand which time to be under the law, which time to be as a Jew, which time to be as a Gentile without law. But never willy-nilly and never just whatever he thought got up that morning, I'll be without law today. And always understanding that without law meant not the law of Moses, the old covenant. But notice how clear Paul makes this. And this is why it, just, it always stuns me when someone comes and does some ungodly thing and says, I'm doing what Paul did. You are not. You forgot to read the whole thing. Because back in our text, he, Paul just makes this crystal clear. It says, to those who are without law, verse 21, as without law, though, in case anyone could mistake the thought that maybe I can go do ungodly things, in the name of the gospel, to win ungodly people by doing ungodly stuff, Paul says, though not being without the law of God. This is completely fascinating. I thought the law of God was the Old Testament. Well, no, that's only one aspect of the law of God now done, right? But there remains a law of God. Make no mistake. Everything that pertains to his righteous character is still in effect. Nice try, right? I don't know Old Testament law. I have to obey any of that stuff. Anything that the Old Testament did or said that reflected God's moral character that then was not, as it were, fulfilled in Christ flows through. You know Matthew 5, verse 17, where Jesus says, don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So of course you don't do the sacrificial system anymore. Of course now Christianity has been extended to Gentiles, so there's no longer the cultural, religio uh, cultural expectations, right? And then the way that those laws were formulated for a Jewish nation, those are yours. But the underlying moral character of God flows through. And in fact, now that moral character is what? It's not just known in the law as in the Old Testament covenant. It's now written on your heart so that all the nature of God that flows through the fulfillment of Christ, now you are compelled to obey by the Spirit of God. It's called the law of love which is bound up, or if you, if you live according to the law of love, well, that means just love everybody. Yeah, we just do whatever. No, it means you, what? Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't lie. Don't muzzle the ox watch treading out the grain. All those laws now become actually intrinsic to your character and are carefully spelled out in the pages of Scripture, some of them, and then all the other ones, be kind, gracious, compassionate, humble, gentle. Those are laws they just don't have specific application that Paul says, well, be humble in this circumstance only. No, always be humble. Always be kind. I think you understand. This, in one sense, is not that complex. 
can, well, you can get in trouble, you know, understanding which part of this applies where. But Paul is simply saying, look, he says, law of God, he says, I'm under the law of God, right? So he says, not being without the law of God, but what? Under the law of Christ. That is all parts of God's moral character that Christ affirms. I fulfill that you don't go to the sacrificial system because it's fulfilled. Again, you don't live according to Jewish religion, uh, cultural law because you now, Christianity is now extended without a nation. Right? It's not a national issue any longer. So he says, look, you're under, this is just another way of saying you're under the new covenant. This law that's now written on your heart and all the truths that the Spirit of God enables you to understand and obey that flow out of Scripture. Romans 13, 8, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled, this is fascinating, the law. Right? I mean, you can't, you can't ever get away from the obedience to the law of God. Paul says, look, I'm, I'm living as without law, not Jewish old covenant regulations, but I have the law of God and I'm under the law of Christ, so I must always reflect God's moral character. Oh, just always remember that. I think for most of you, that is just not an issue. You're not looking for ways to disobey Christ. But unfortunately, too many in our kind of modern, wider church world are. Somehow we're going to portray the gospel in ways that are ungodly and say, Paul said I could do that. No, he didn't. Can't change the message. and You can't change the moral character of Christians. And if you try, you're wrong. You're just in sin. Don't call it accommodation. Don't call it contextualization. Just call it sin and stop. And portray Christ as he does. But on the flip side, don't hold your self-righteousness. Well, I can't go, I can't eat that. You know, or or I, I can't accommodate that person in their wrestle because that would, you know, that would be legalism. And No, you need to be much more careful. Your own self-righteousness doesn't apply on the other side. I could never associate with a person that does that. That is, if you could do that without sinning. Of course you could. And you need to be very careful that you're not, yeah, I mean, remember here, Paul says, no matter what, you, you, you know, he's under the law of Christ. Yeah, he's also not under the law of Moses. He's also not compelled right, to hold to his own codes of conduct. He's free to set them all down. He's free to eat meat in a say, if it's going to help someone come to Christ to not eat meat, I'm done. So don't, don't get too far on one side or the other. Woohoo, you know, live it up. Or, you know, I've got all the structural things and nobody can come within my sphere. Our church does this and we only do that and nobody thinks it's close. Man, you smoke a cigarette, you're done. Don't come in here. Don't come in smoking. That would not, that's not I mean, just, it's, it's bad. It's bad for us. But it doesn't make you not a Christian. Please. Right? I hope, I hope you knew that. I said, those are not the kinds of things that we do. I'm feeling, oh, I'm out of here. I just, we, we, there are things that you can hold on to that are not the kinds of things that Paul would hold on to. This can go either way. We're free to interact at all times with those who do not subject themselves to the system of Mosaic, of mosaic law. We do not have to keep ourselves separate from general society on the basis of any of the commandments given in the New Testament. That is, where we can. I mean, you can wear shorts. It's okay. Right? I, I, you can, don't have to wear culottes when you play basketball. For some of you, and you even know what that word means, you're like, that's fantastic. That's great. You don't have to do that because you are not underneath those things. You could probably go to a movie with someone assuming that the movie isn't profane. Right? Don't, again, don't, don't woo Chris said movies. Most of them you can't see. But is there, some, is there some rule that says thou shalt not go to the theater? No. Right? So again, I, I think we understand this generally, but unfortunately it gets misused because we don't have the same heart as the Apostle Paul. When I was in youth ministry, I still am in youth ministry, I guess, in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, I took a group, about 60 or 70 of us, we went to the Wounded Knee Indian Reservation in South Dakota, and we were going with another missions organization. Bad mistake. 
I, I should have known better, but so I go, and this is other guy in charge of it, and we're on the Indian reservation, and lo and behold, what I find out, along with a lot of other things, is that he was like kind of the local shaman. So he was a professing Christian who would then become kind of their Christian shaman, and so he'd go to their powwows and mix Christianity with, East, with this Native American religion. So we sit down, and we didn't go to the powwow itself, but after that, we're, we're sitting, and, and he brings over one of, his, one of the Native American shaman guys who, to, to preach the gospel to us. He's going to tell us Native American really came first and gospel comes later and that it's all kind of the same. And, you know, but really, the Native American spirits, you ought to be getting in touch with those. And I'm sitting there, I've got 70 kids. I'm like, we got to get out of here really fast. So I'm trying to debrief all that. And it's my fault. I shouldn't have taken them. Take them. But I found out, fascinatingly enough, that the man who did that, I, I found this out several years later, was a man named Tony Jones. If you're, if you're all familiar with the emergent church movement, he is, remains one of the leaders of the now very small emergent church. It emerged and it disappeared because to try to build a church on there are no absolutes is pretty hard. And there's, he's still trying to do it. I looked him up today. He's still going after this thing of the, you know, there, there are, you got you to become all things to all men by accommodating the gospel and truth in every way. That's the bad seed. That's the bad form of this. So it happens. And I was, I was part and parcel to it as far as I was there. And this guy is still doing the same thing. You can't do that. You can't live in that. You can't go to the powwow where they're actually worshiping these, you know, these demons and, and say, oh, yeah, bring your kids. And, and we'll come in and we'll teach these things. So we don't flaunt our freedom, or forsake our commitment to the principles of Scripture. And yet we are able to then have all the freedom that the Lord would have. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, Paul says, don't be bound together with unbelievers. What partnership is righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship is light with darkness? What harmony is Christ with Belial? It's almost as though the Corinthians read this and were like, woohoo! You know, now we're without law. I was like, well, wait a minute. You can't be associated with unbelievers like that. You can't partner with them. 2 Corinthians 7 1, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So nothing you can do would change that. But man, there's a lot of leeway within your legalistic expectations and maybe your liberty and your desire to be lawless. Right? We're going to have to get rid of all of that and just pursue a, a servant's heart to get rid of anything which would get in the way of the gospel that doesn't compromise the character of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that's even always easy. Usually, the compromise of the character of Christ is the easier part. Trying to figure out what I might get, you know, how I might come underneath someone's law or how I might move into that system, that can be the harder part. But we are called to do those things because, once again, Paul desires for as many as possible to come to Christ. Now, this fourth one, so the, you know, the first two Jews, third one, Gentiles, this fourth one, everybody. So he's back to a general principle here where Paul says, I became weak, so back in our text, verse 22, to the weak, I became weak. Notice there's no as, and I think that's very important. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. He wasn't really, Right? To the, those under the law, as under the law, wasn't really. To those without law, as without law, wasn't really. To the weak, I became weak. What does he mean? Now, Paul often uses this term, and he's used it even in this context, of those who are weak in conscience, believers, right, who aren't yet ready for certain kinds of practices. But he can't mean believers here, because he's talking about winning unbelievers, saying, I'm, I'm becoming certain things to unbelievers. That's the context. I mean, it's possible that he's talking about that, but I don't think that's the issue, because he uses the term weak Paul uses it several other places and even in 1 Corinthians to indicate those just all unbelievers who are weak, that is, unable to come to Christ, who, who whether they know it or not, are utterly 
humbled underneath the mighty hand of God. And Paul says, look, I become like that. You might be like, wait a minute. Paul, you're in Christ. You're not actually weak. But Paul states it to the very Corinthians themselves as I came in a kind of weakness because that's how the gospel is presented. It's the ultimate accommodation to refuse to present the gospel in the arrogance of the human system, which is now where our culture has gone. Cultural Christianity has said, look, we've got to be impressive to the culture. So we'll come not in weakness. Paul doesn't, by the way, say, you know, I, I became weak, although I'm not really weak. And nowhere here does he say, I, I became as strong to the strong. The weakness here is a recognition of total inability, and Paul came presenting the gospel in that way and presenting himself as one who, apart from Christ, was utterly weak. Romans 5, 6, he uses this term. For a while we were still helpless, weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But even more close to home in 1 Corinthians 1, so turn there. He uses this term several times, and he's really referring, I think, here in, in chapter 9 to the way he came to them. I came in weakness. I became weak. Why? To win the weak. That is, everyone's weak. And so I can't present myself as strong. Look at me, Paul, powerful guy. I come. I'm doing all this great stuff. I'm this great orator. I have done all these things to come to Christ. I came weak because all are weak. As I said, it's the ultimate accommodation because it's the accommodation of our Lord. He came as, he became weak. Not even as weak. He took on sinful flesh. He didn't come sinning, but he came weak. He took on real flesh. Paul says, I'm, I'm doing that. I'm becoming weak for you. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, Paul says, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, the base things and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. This is always the way we contextualize the gospel in our own weakness and presenting, as it were, Christ willing to become weak on our behalf, to be crucified on a cross, even though he was not weak, even though in Christ we are not, but we present in that way. He goes on to say in chapter 2, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul says, look, I came weak because you need to see that this is not for strong men. This is not for powerful men. This is not for impressive men. We must stop trying to accommodate our culture in this way. Oh, we think if we'll look strong and cool and awesome and, you know, we'll come with these powerful shows and big games and all the stuff we do, then the world will say, oh, Christianity is something. It won't. It will simply adopt Christianity as next in the pantheon of arrogance. That's all that the world will do. And Satan will laugh all the way, as it were, to hell with those. We cannot accommodate the gospel in that way. We come weak. We are nothing. Our Savior is everything, and even He came weak. A crucified Savior. Paul spends the whole first four chapters of 1 Corinthians laying that out and then demonstrating His ability to bring us His strength by rising from the dead. Paul desired for those who were weak and helpless to be transformed by the power of the gospel, and the only way to do that was to come weak. 
Do not try to impress your friends. Do not try, well, look at my house and look at my car. Well, I've got it all together and things are great, so you ought to come to Christ. That is not why they ought to come to Christ. It's in spite of those things. You are those things in spite of yourself. Apart from Christ, you and I were nothing. And we didn't become ourselves something in him. Didn't we just sing the song? What a sweet song that was. Our worth is bound up in his love. That's where our worth comes from. Not in who we are. This is exactly what Paul is saying. To the weak, he became weak. Now, I just need to, I need to hurry to the end because these are, next, these are summary statements in, verses, in verse 23. End of verse 24. He says, I have become, end of verse 22, I've become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. He's just simply summarizing what he said. I'll be a Jew. I'll be a Gentile. To all men, I'll be weak. It doesn't matter. I will do whatever it takes, but not, again, some sinful thing, just simply I will portray as is appropriate to the group I am with to properly express the nature of who Jesus is, that they might be one, and I won't hold to any one particular thing that I myself think, this is the way, this is the method, this is what you do. It doesn't matter. I'll give up any kind of freedom I might have to do it a certain way to demonstrate my weakness. So that, what does it say? So that I might by all means save some. What's the some there mean? The all that God would have. He has to say some because God has not chosen all. All will not be in heaven. So he says some, but it doesn't mean the fewest. He already said more, and the more relates to the some, and that the more and the some are the same. All whom God will save, and all whom he would use you to save. Away with apathy. Away with God as sovereign, so he will do his thing. Now he calls you to be a slave and to do all things. To, to, to become all things to all men. See, we don't want to do that. We just want to be American Christian, or we want to be my brand of Christian, reform Christian. Guys, you, you don't have a brand, and you need to put it away. You don't put away the law of God. You don't put away the law of Christ, but you put away your brand, and you put away, I'm the homeschool this, and I'm the this, that, and I'm the, you know, the reform this, and I'm the Calvinist that. Put it away. Put it away. We come in whatever means necessary so that others might be one. Paul then said, look, I'll become all things. So Paul's dedication to slavery, he became all things to all men. He desired to every person whom God had chosen to put saving faith in Jesus Christ and that everyone in his sphere of influence he would minister to. And he did this because of Christ. If you want to know what it looks like to become all things to all men, look at Jesus. Sin in Jesus, please. And yet, have this attitude in yourselves, Philippians 2, 5 which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. There's weakness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. He became a slave, bondservant, slave. He was a slave to us. See, we're sending Eva Huff out tonight, right? She's going to go be a slave in India. Good thing Eva's going. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying there aren't greater sacrifices for our missionaries. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is you can't send Eva out as a slave and say, she goes as a slave in my place. No, you are a slave. I am a slave. We don't sit back in America with our comfy homes, which is fine. I have a very comfortable home. We don't sit back and say, I'm not a slave. I have to be a slave in my comfy home. There is no choice. You do not say, as a Christian, I'll either choose or not to become a slave. Your Savior was a slave for you. Paul sets that example. And then he just, he just broadens it out, yet joyfully, verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Your family, your career, I am not overstating this. 
You're saying, Chris, you're making too much of this church thing and, and, and making disciples thing. I'm, I couldn't. Your Savior stepped out of heaven because that's what mattered. Did he make too much of it? He suffered unto death. The Son of God, the creator of the universe, killed by his own people. Did he make too much of it? And somehow we're calling, I'm calling on us to do more than we ought? I couldn't even do that unless it was some weird legalistic thing that wasn't scriptural. Also, look, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. You live in your family for the sake of the gospel. You do your hobbies for the sake. You have freedom to do those things. All of that is done for the sake of the gospel. You go to work for the sake of the gospel. You're married for the sake of the gospel. You raise your children for the sake of the gospel. Everything. Because that's what we're called to do. But notice, last thing, I've got to leave you with this. Because like, whoa, you just came down pretty hard at the end. Yeah, but why? Look. Because I want to ruin your life. No, look at verse 23. So that I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I might become a fellow partaker of it. Now, he could mean, he says at the end of this chapter, when I serve for the gospel, I actively proclaim it. I, I want to work hard so I'm not disqualified. That is, I'll make it all the way through to the end. He, it could mean that. But he says that there. What he means here is, look, I do all of this because it enables me to partake fully in the actual benefits and blessings of the gospel. If I don't become a slave, I miss out on the joyful fellowship of the blessings and benefits of grace shared with those who come to Christ. You're missing out if you're not a slave. You think you're doing better because you're not a slave and your life is better and you don't have to do this or that. You're missing out on the fellowship of the gospel, on the fellowship you would have with Christ. You're missing out. Give up your stuff. Become a slave. Because when you do, you you partake fully. Are you anxious this morning? Frustrated this morning? Bitter? I submit to you, it is because you are not fully partaking in the benefits and blessings of the gospel by making yourself a slave. You wouldn't have to worry about those things. You don't have to be all bound up with all of those things. Paul is saving your life by calling you to be a slave. Jesus saved your life by calling you to be a slave. You don't have to be bound up in anything. Give your life. It doesn't matter if you got stuff. It doesn't matter if the, what the political system looks like. I mean, I understand those things have temporal things. I get that. But at the end of the day, when you're a slave to everyone and your whole life is lived for the gospel, those other things cease to matter. So Paul's trying to save your life. Let's become slaves that we may partake fully in the blessings and benefits of the gospel and rejoice in the work that God will do. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the truths of your word. Thank you that you became a slave for us. You humbled yourself all the way unto death and thank you for men who have been our example, for apostles, Paul, for others in our lives. And Lord, forgive us. Father, forgive me for the areas where I, where I will not yield my life. I will not lay down my own desires to be a slave to men. And I pray that we as a church would do this well. In your precious name, amen.